You know that moment when you vow to marry the love of your life, but then your brother sabotages your relationship, and you end up having to marry some guy you hardly know and definitely don't love. No? Well, there's an opera that perfectly captures the horrible tragedy of that situation. Donizetti's Lucia de Lammermoor. This is the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast. The Metropolitan Opera Guild is dedicated to enriching people's lives through an awareness and deeper appreciation of opera. Our podcast features lectures and events presented by the Guild in support of performances at the Metropolitan Opera. The Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast is funded in part by support from the Stuart J. Pierce Memorial Fund. To learn more, visit metguild.org. We can't let this opera season end without spending some time with Lucia de Lammermoor, a Met opera favorite. Gaetano Donizetti's 1835 tragic opera returns to the stage in a production by Mary Zimmerman, including all the heartbreaking turns that make for a dramatic night of theater. I'm Stuart Holt, and on today's episode, my podcast co-host and Guild lecturer Naomi Baratera brings a fresh approach to talking about one of the most beloved tragic operas of the bel canto period. In 1819, Scottish playwright and author Sir Walter Scott published The Bride of Lammermoor, which told the tragic tale of Lucy Ashton and her doomed love with Edgar Ravenswood, the son of her father's rival. Although the two become engaged and vow to set aside the bad blood between their families, Lucy's mother interferes, intercepting Edgar's letters while he is traveling, and convinces Lucy that he has forgotten about her. Lucy is manipulated into a politically advantageous marriage to a man she doesn't love, Francis Bucklaw, only to have Edgar reappear after she has signed the marriage contract. Scorning Lucy for breaking her vow to him, he leaves. Heartbroken and rejected, without given the chance to explain herself to the man she truly loves, Lucy moves forward with the marriage to Bucklaw, breaking under the pressure of her family. Chapter 34 of Sir Walter Scott's novel describes the tragic climax of the story in this way. The instruments now played their loudest strains. The dancers pursued their exercise with all the enthusiasm inspired by youth, mirth, and high spirits, when a cry was heard, so shrill and piercing as at once to arrest the dance and the music. All stood motionless, but when the yell was again repeated, Colonel Ashton snatched a torch from the sconce and demanding the key of the bridal chamber from Henry, to whom as a bridesman it had been entrusted, rushed thither, followed by Sir William Ashton and Lady Ashton and one or two others near relations of the family. The bridal guests waited their return in stupefied amazement. Arrived at the door of the apartment, Colonel Ashton knocked and called, but received no answer except stifled groans. He hesitated no longer to open the door of the apartment, in which he found opposition from something which lay against it. When he succeeded in opening it, the body of the bridegroom was found lying on the threshold of the bridal chamber, and all around was flooded with blood. A cry of surprise and horror was raised by all present and the company, excited by this new alarm, began to rush tumultuously toward the sleeping apartment. Colonel Ashton, first whispering to his mother, search for her, she has murdered him, drew his sword, planted himself in the passage, and declared he would suffer no man to pass except the clergyman and a medical person present. 
By their assistance, Bucklaw, who still breathed, was raised from the ground and transported to another apartment where his friends, full of suspicion and murmuring, assembled round him to learn the opinion of the surgeon. In the meanwhile, Lady Ashton, her husband, and their assistants sought in vain, looking for Lucy in the bridal bed and in the chamber. There was no private passage from the room, and they began to think that she must have thrown herself from the window, when one of the company, holding his torch lower than the rest, discovered something white in the corner of the great old-fashioned chimney of the apartment. Here they found the unfortunate girl seated, or rather crouched like a hare upon its form, her headgear disheveled, her nightclothes torn and dabbled with blood, her eyes glazed, and her features convulsed into a wild paroxysm of insanity. When she saw herself discovered, she gibbered, made mouths, and pointed at them with her bloody fingers, with a frantic gesture of an exalting demonic. Female assistance was now hastily summoned. The unhappy bride was overpowered, not without the use of some force. As they carried her over the threshold, she looked down and uttered the only articulate words that she had yet spoken, saying with a sort of grinning exultation, "'Sure, you have taken up your bonny bridegroom!' She was, by the shuddering assistance, conveyed to another and more retired apartment, where she was secured as her situation required and closely watched. The unutterable agony of the parents, the horror and confusion of all who were in the castle, the fury of contending passions between the friends of the different parties, and augmented by previous intemperance surpassed description. The cares of the medical man were next employed in behalf of Miss Ashton, whom he pronounced to be in a very dangerous state. Further medical assistance was immediately summoned. All night she remained delirious. On the morning, she fell into a state of absolute insensibility. The next evening, the physician said, would be the crisis of her malady. It proved so, for although she awoke from her trance with some appearance of calmness, suffered her nightclothes to be changed or put in order, yet so soon as she put her hand to her neck as if to search for the fatal blue ribbon, a tide of recollections seemed to rush upon her, which her mind and body were alike incapable of bearing. Convulsion followed convulsion till they closed in death, without her being able to utter a word explanatory of the fatal scene. The provincial judge of the district arrived the day after the young lady had expired, and executed, though with all possible delicacy to the afflicted family, the painful duty of inquiring into this fatal transaction. But there occurred nothing to explain the general hypothesis that the bride, in a sudden fit of insanity, had stabbed the bridegroom at the threshold of the apartment. The fatal weapon was found in the chamber, smeared with blood. Following this scene in the novel, Bucklaw recovers from his stab wounds and a funeral is held for Lucy. Edgar attends the funeral and Lucy's family publicly accuses him of being responsible for her death. Lucy's brother challenges Edgar to a duel and Edgar agrees, but on the way to the duel, he falls into a pit of quicksand and dies. And that is how the novel ends. Gaetano Donizetti was not the first composer to draw inspiration from Sir Walter Scott's tragic story of Lucy Ashton, but his operatic rendering of the tale, Lucia de Lamamor, with a libretto by Salvadore Camarino, was a success from day one and would be the only operatic version of The Bride of Lamamor to survive in the present-day operatic canon. Donizetti composed Lucia when all things Scottish and English held exotic fascination for Italians of the early 1800s. 
Before Donizetti, there were at least five other operas in existence based on the Scott novel, including works by Michele Carafa, Alberto Mazzucato, Luigi Rieschi, and a Danish composer named Ivan Frederick Bredel. Donizetti and Camerino were familiar with some of these works, and as musicologist Jerome Mitchell describes, the success of Lucia de Lammermoor is partly attributed to what Donizetti and Camerino learned from these earlier operatic attempts at telling the tale. He writes, To Camerino and Donizetti, the love story was the emotional core of the novel. They knew that this was conducive to good, effective opera as it had evolved in Italy in the 1830s. They borrowed ideas from earlier Bride of Lammermoor operas and avoided their weaknesses. For all the disparaging things that had been said about Scott's story and its characters, the test of time has proven that Camerino and Donizetti knew what they were about. Of the whole large and significant group of operas which were inspired by the works of one writer, Sir Walter Scott, and which well-nigh dominated the operatic genre in the 19th century, Lucia di Lammermoor is the grand and glorious vestige. Like all composer-librettist teams, Donizetti and Camerino had a number of dramatic choices to make in transferring the characters and events of the source material into an operatic framework. In the process, Camerino decided to trim down the cast of characters and carefully selected the most important dramatic moments in the novel that served to tell the tale of doomed love and Lucy's ultimate demise. The opera was arranged into a series of numbers or scenes spread over three acts. Act 1 includes introductory arias for Lucia, her brother, renamed Enrico, and ends with a glorious love duet where we meet Edgardo. Lucia and Edgardo swear they will wed when he returns from France, he is a soldier and is essentially being set off on a tour of duty, and they vow their eternal love for one another. The melodic material of this duet is extremely important and will return later in the opera. Here we have Diana Damrau singing Lucia and Joseph Kalea singing Edgardo. Pensando che io dicevi mi può 
begins with Lucia's brother Enrico presenting her with a forged letter from Edgardo in efforts to convince her that he has abandoned her, all in an effort to get her to agree to a marriage with another man, Arturo, a suitor that he approves of. Lucia is lied to and manipulated by both her brother and her trusted tutor and friend, Raimondo, until she finally agrees. In the second scene, we see Lucia's family and a congregation of guests assembled to witness the signing of the marriage contract, with Lucia acting strange, detached, and almost without emotion. Enrico says to Arturo that this is to be expected, as she is still mourning the loss of her mother. But having witnessed the manipulation she has endured, believing her true love has forsaken her, and seeing her forced into a marriage with a man she doesn't love, it is no wonder she appears to be slowly shutting down. Right as she finishes signing the contract, Edgardo comes bursting onto the scene, horrified to find Lucia has betrayed him. In Scott's original novel, this moment is described in this way. The business of the day went forward. Sir William Ashton signed the contract with legal solemnity and precision, his son with military nonchalance, and Bucklaw, having subscribed as rapidly as one could manage to turn the leaves, concluded by wiping his pen on that worthy's new laced cravat. It was now Miss Ashton's turn to sign the writings, and she was guided by her watchful mother to the table for that purpose. At her first attempt, she began to write with a dry pen, and when the circumstance was pointed out, seemed unable, after several attempts, to dip it in the massive silver ink standish which stood full before her. Lady Ashton's vigilance hastened to supply the deficiency. I have myself seen the fatal deed, and in the distinct characters in which the name of Lucy Ashton is traced on each page, there is only a very slight tremulous irregularity, indicative of her state of mind at the time of the subscription. But the last signature is incomplete, defaced, and blotted. For, while her hand was employed in tracing it, the hasty tramp of a horse was heard at the gate, succeeded by a step in the outer gallery and a voice which, in a commanding tone, bore down the opposition of the menials. The pen dropped from Lucy's fingers, and she exclaimed with a faint shriek, He is come! He is come! At this moment in the opera, Donizetti seemed to make time stop in the score, pausing the dramatic action to allow each character to express their emotions and reactions to the confrontation that has unfolded in what is now an incredibly famous sextet, followed by Edgardo publicly cursing Lucia, throwing his betrothal ring at her feet, and being dragged out of the castle. Before we listen to this moment, I want to share a description of the scene from the Royal Opera Covent Garden, written by Kate Hopkins. She writes, the moment Lucia signs the wedding contract, she feels a terrible foreboding, highlighted by dramatic orchestral tremolos. She is right to do so. Seconds later, Edgardo bursts in, interrupting the wedding party and briefly shocking everyone into silence. The sextet opens with a duet between Edgardo and Enrico, in which Edgardo expresses pity and enduring love for Lucia, and Enrico expresses remorse for his treachery. The men's closely linked vocal lines show how, for the first time, these two enemies are united in compassion. Lucia then takes up the melody, shadowed by the chaplain Raimondo. Lucia is too unhappy to even weep. Raimondo fears an evil end to the day and pities her. Meanwhile, Edgardo and Enrico reiterate their feelings in short asides. The sex tech grows richer in texture and the range of emotions expand as we discover each character's reaction to the shocking event. 
The textures become richer still as the chorus join, doubled by Arturo and Lucia's companion Elisa, in terms of solo lines a sextet is really a quartet, expressing fear and pity for Lucia. As the emotional temperatures rise, Lucia's increasingly broken phrases and anguished repeated high notes show her deepening distress. This heightens still further in the sextet's closing bars as, following a short unaccompanied passage for her still remorseful brother and lover, she soars to her highest note in the sextet, closing the ensemble in a mood of profound despair. In the ensuing section, a bridge between the sextet and the finale, the male character's energy and purpose returns with steady figures in the strings, providing a sense of constant momentum. Arturo and Enrico square up to their old enemy Edgardo, who vows not to leave without a struggle. Raimondo breaks in, reminding everyone to a slow majestic chord that God abhors murderers. He shows Edgardo Lucia's wedding contract. With cold dignity, Edgardo asks Lucia if she signed it. Lucia quietly answers, yes. In a dramatic unaccompanied phrase, Edgardo declares that Lucia has betrayed both heaven and love. The musical tension rises almost unbearably in the ensuing rapid finale. Edgardo repeatedly curses Lucia in a high-lying declamatory line. She can only respond with a wordless cry to his furious, may God destroy you. The chorus, Enrico, Raimondo, and Arturo launch into the stretta, a rapid concluding passage here in the rhythm of a fiery tarantella, repeatedly ordering Edgardo to leave. In a poignant aside, Lucia and Edgardo sing lyrically in unison, Lucia praying for Edgardo's safety, Edgardo longing for death. Their lamentations soar above the chorus's furious denunciations as the finale speeds to its frantic end, closing with a final high-pitched cry of anguish from Lucia.
As an interesting side note, this sextet became incredibly popular in the early 1900s, largely due to a recording made by the Victor Recording Company in 1908, featuring tenor Enrico Caruso, bass Marcel Journet, soprano Marcella Zembrick, tenor Francesco Dotti, 
baritone Antonio Scotto, and mezzo-soprano Gina Severina. It was released as a single-sided LP and could be purchased for the exorbitant price, for the time period, of $7. That is estimated to be equivalent to about $170 or more dollars today. Just to give you a taste of this piece of recorded history, here is a minute or two of the $7 sextet recording. begins with Enrico seeking out Edgardo to challenge him to a duel, and the two agree to meet at the Ravenswood graveyard, near the Wolf Crag. The scene then changes to Lamamore Castle, where the wedding guests are assembled and partying the night away. Their revelry is interrupted by a scream, and Raimondo discovers that Lucia has gone mad. She has murdered Arturo, her groom, in their wedding chamber, or bridal suite, and she wanders into the banquet hall where the guests are gathered, her wedding dress covered in blood. Everyone is horrified, including her brother, Enrico, but also terrified to approach her, given the state that she's in. This begins the famous Lucia mad scene, where she hallucinates about having wed not Arturo, the man she has murdered, but Edgardo, her true love. She recalls music from earlier in the opera, specifically the love duet, imagining that they are happily celebrating their wedding, and sings her way through an elaborate cantabile and cabaletta, usually clocking in around 15 minutes total, expressing her maddened and delirious state. At the end of the mad scene, she collapses and is carried away, ultimately dying off stage. Even though the mad scene in Lucia did not immediately catch on as the most musically compelling moment of the work, Early critics tended to favor the Act I love duet in the Act II sextet. It has since become one of the most studied, talked about, and admired moments in the opera. Audiences wait to hear what a soprano will do with the mad scene, what vocal ornamentation she will interpolate, what kind of cadenza she will emphasize, and how she will use every tool in her performative arsenal to express Lucia's tragic fate with heartbreaking effectiveness. In the bel canto era, the mad scene was a vehicle for virtuosic singing, the perfect dramatic excuse for a singer to show off the most extreme vocal acrobatics as an expression of Lucia's madness. Fascination with female madness was another popular topic in the time of Donizetti, and the numerous mad scenes that can be found in bel canto repertoire are a testament to its popularity as a dramatic device. But Lucia was one of the first to never really bounce back to sanity and security after experiencing an episode of madness or delirium. Her madness leads to her death. 
We'll come back to further discussion of Lucia's madness in a few moments, but first we need to touch on an important part of the orchestration. When Donizetti composed the mad scene for Lucia, he featured an instrument that was fairly foreign to the standard opera orchestra, the glass harmonica. A dictionary definition of the glass harmonica describes it as a type of musical instrument that uses a series of glass bowls or goblets graduated in size to produce musical tones by means of friction. The history behind this instrument is really fascinating and deserves a few minutes of exploration in our discussion today. Both Sir Francis Bacon and Galileo wrote about the phenomenon of sound or vibrations being created by traveling the rim of a glass with a moist finger. And we know that people were playing musical glasses in a performative musical way as early as 1607. The instrument started as a series of crystal glasses filled with water to different levels that would create ringing pitches when you drew a wet finger around the rim of the glass. The story goes that Benjamin Franklin saw water glasses being played while traveling in England, which inspired him to create his own version of the instrument that would allow for more virtuosic playing. Instead of using water levels to create different pitches, he turned the glass bowl on its side and used different sized bowls to create different pitches. By turning them sideways, he could nest the bowls into a long cone shape and attach them to a center spindle or axis. The spindle was then connected to a foot pedal, which when depressed would cause the glass spindle and bowls to rotate. The player would moisten their fingers with water and touch the rim or edge of the bowls as they were rotating. This design essentially created a keyboard of glasses, allowing the player to touch multiple bowls at the same time, creating multiple pitches simultaneously, just like a piano player can depress several keys at the same time to create a chord. Franklin's version of the glass harmonica was created in 1761 and quickly gained popularity, so much so that we know that Mozart was acquainted with the instrument in his teenage years, and Marie Antoinette was considered a very accomplished glass harmonica player. So when Donizetti decided to feature the glass harmonica in Lucia in 1835, the instrument wasn't new to audiences and wasn't new to the composer either. People were fascinated by the timbre that this instrument created. It was delicate and sweet, but also strange and otherworldly. Today, we know that the reason for this strange timbre of the glass harmonica is actually linked to the type of sound wave it produces. Because the sound wave created is somewhere between 1 and 4 hertz, the human brain actually has a very difficult time decoding both the direction of the sound and the source of the sound. For some people, the disorienting feeling of the sound is so incredibly bothersome, and because people didn't really understand why this was in Donizetti's time, there were rumors in Vienna that the instrument itself could cause madness. As one writer reported in the famous musical journal the Allgemeine Musikalische Zeitung in 1798, there may be various reasons for the scarcity of harmonica players, principally the almost universally shared opinion that playing it is damaging to the health, that it excessively stimulates the nerves, plunges the player into a nagging depression, and hence into a dark and melancholy mood, that it is an apt method for slow self-annihilation. Many physicians with whom I have discussed this matter say the sharp penetrating tones run like a spark through the entire nervous system, forcibly shaking it up and causing nervous disorders. If you are suffering from any nervous disorder, you should not play it. If you are not yet ill, you should not play it excessively. If you are feeling melancholy, you should not play it or else play uplifting pieces. If tired, avoid playing it late at night. As described in a blog post from the Royal Opera House Covent Garden, 
Tinnitus, or ringing in the ears, disorientation, and even madness struck the players of the glass harmonica with alarming regularity. The instrument was credited with causing evil and endangering the public. Reports of mental instability and hysteria soon saw this eerie instrument relegated from the realms of solo performance. Opera, however, with its frequent flights of fancy and multiple mad scenes, is where this instrumental anomaly found its home. Donizetti was not the first composer in the Western classical music canon to write music for the glass harmonica, nor would he be the last. Both Mozart and Beethoven composed for the instrument, Richard Strauss included the instrument in the orchestration for Die Frau ohne Schatten, and much more recently, George Benjamin featured the glass harmonica in his opera Written on Skin. By the time Donizetti composed Lucia, the instrument has strong social connotations or connections with madness, so it was a fitting instrument to achieve a dramatic mad scene. Let's listen to the opening of the mad scene so you can hear the glass harmonica in the context of the opera and get a sense of that strange, sweet, and otherworldly timbre that Donizetti was after. Thank you. 
even though the mad scene is often performed today as Donizetti wrote it, with a glass harmonica accompanying Lucia throughout, it actually did not make its world premiere this way. Days before opening night at the Teatro San Carlo in Naples, the glass harmonica player felt, or the story goes, that he felt that he was not being paired a fair wage for his work. He complained to theater management, but they refused to give him a pay raise. So the day before the world premiere, he quit, and a replacement glass harmonica player could not be found in time for the performance. So for the world premiere of Lucia, the glass harmonica part was played by the flute. Now the flute is not such an odd or horrible choice for this scenario. For the very first time we meet Lucia in the opera, the flute is prominently connected with her vocal line, so it was a fitting substitution to continue the use of the flute in the mad scene, and it is the closest instrument in terms of pitch range and timbre to the glass harmonica. The use of the flute in Lucia's mad scene also has its own interesting history. It has become a part of common practice to integrate the flute into Lucia's improvised cadenza, which takes place midway through the mad scene. Recalling melodic elements from Lucia and Edgardo's Act One duet, the flute goes back and forth with Lucia as if in conversation. Because this is not actually in the score, it is something singer and flautist would have to work out ahead of time. This tradition has become so ingrained in the performance practice of Lucia that one might think that Donizetti himself called for it in the score. However, this is not the case, and musicologists such as Romana Margarita Pugliese have done extensive research in tracing the origins of the Lucia cadenza with flute, pinpointing its first performance to 1889, with the role of Lucia being performed by Nelly Melba at the Palais Garnier. An account of the performance in La Menestrale described it in this way. After her mad aria, Melba received ovations from all corners of the house. Here she had a vertiginous cadenza in which she followed the acrobatics of Tafanel's flute with incomparable mastery. A transcription of Melba's cadenza can be found in the Bibliothèque de l'Opéra in Paris and was actually captured in the very early years of sound recording. Here is Melba herself singing the cadenza in a 1904 recording. And to give you a sense of one of the most famous flute soprano Lucia cadenzas in recent history, here is Joan Sutherland singing Lucia at the Met.
contrast the flute-soprano pairing, this is an improvised cadenza with Deanna Damrau singing, with a glass harmonica instead of a flute accompanying her or paired with her throughout. back to examining the whole concept of madness in Lucia, there are so many different perspectives that musicologists have offered to help us better understand ways of reading the work and ways of understanding madness in the operatic context. The traditional perspective is that the character's descent into madness is a result of truly terrible circumstances, an unfortunate end to an unfortunate character. The feminist perspective is that madness is a positive liberation from a repressive situation, it is a mode of resistance, a female character's way of thwarting the patriarchal forces in her life and taking back some sense of control. It is a positive resistance to male authority. Catherine Clement famously described Lucia's madness as positive liberation for her character, saying, Lucia dances with her desires. Listen to how joyfully airy and peaceful it is. Who says anything about unhappiness? Mad women's voices sing the most perfect happiness. 
The middle ground perspective is somewhere between the traditional and the feminist, where we can view madness and all portrayals of mental illness on an operatic stage as containing both positive and negative messages for society, and for the fate of the characters. Scholars such as Marianne Smart have written extensively about interpretive perspectives in this middle ground, discussing how, while madness can be viewed as a victory for the oppressed character, there is usually nothing truly positive about the ultimate outcome. Madness and death may signal liberation in a sense, but if the only outcome of this mode of liberation is death, and if madness and death is the only path for any character who behaves contrary to society's expectations, then the message is not a happy or positive one. Deciding how one is going to interpret Lucia and her madness is a decision every opera director who takes on this work, and every soprano who sings the role, needs to contemplate. As soprano Lisette Oropesa once described, there are some directors that believe she is mad from the beginning. There are others that say she suddenly snaps because of the severity of the circumstances. I tend to favor the latter. Though I do believe that she has a poetic mind full of fantasy and is a free spirit, I don't think that makes her any different from many teenage girls today. The fact is, this abuse from her brother and possibly others might have been going on for many years, and it might not have. We don't know. This is why we have to establish this relationship very clearly in the opera. For me, it's the buildup of events, of course culminating in Edgardo's sudden crash of her sad wedding, that makes everything completely reach a breaking point. Soprano Liuba Petrova described her perspective on the character in saying, This is a woman with a beautiful soul, who wants to love and be loved, and the world she lives in will not let her do that. So she creates her own reality, and in her madness, finds happiness. As a part of this journey, it is important for me to show this possible alter reality from the very beginning of the opera, through Lucia's vulnerability and vivid imagination. Even though the mad scene makes for a very dramatic finish, it is not the actual end of the opera. Similar to Scott's original novel, a duel is set to take place between Enrico, Lucia's brother, and Edgardo. But unlike the Sir Walter Scott novel, news of Lucia's death has not yet reached Edgardo and he does not fall into a sinking sand pit. When Act 3 opens, Edgardo is hoping that he will be killed by Enrico because he cannot bear to think of Lucia with her new husband. But then he learns from Raimondo that Lucia has actually died. Unable to live without Lucia, he stabs himself. Here is a little bit of his last aria where he sings of his hopes of being reunited with Lucia in heaven.
always been something about Lucia di Lammermoor that I find deeply moving and touching. Woven into this somewhat problematic and heartbreaking story are so many things that the characters beg you to contemplate and think about. Lucia calls for understanding and compassion in a way that only the great operatic heroines do. Part of it is that I think Donizetti himself felt a strong connection to this character. Perhaps he imbued his own experiences within her. Donizetti struggled with what society at the time called bouts of melancholy, and scholars today suspect that these bouts of depression were connected with what we now understand as a bipolar condition. Soprano Diana Damrau, who has sung the role of Lucia numerous times under numerous directors, once described her thoughts on linking Lucia's madness to a bipolar interpretation in saying, Lucia's madness is an illness. It's not just a vehicle for a soprano to show her skills and her technique. I talked to a doctor about this, and I think she is bipolar. You can hear that very clearly in the first aria. She gets very, very happy and almost frenetic when she talks about her visions. And ill people can have visions. She's just not the standard romantic figure of the time. Because she is bipolar, she gets very dark and very frightened. Everything seems to be real and very dramatic to her. In addition to possibly suffering the effects of bipolarism, Donizetti also suffered horrible side effects of syphilis and was institutionalized in an insane asylum in the last years of his life. Some scholars suspect that the ringing timbre of the glass harmonica was chosen by Donizetti because it reflected his own experience with tinnitus. Donizetti also died with Lucia in a way. As writer Catherine Duwalt describes, in April 1848, Donizetti was taken back to his hometown of Bergamo after he was stricken with cerebral palsy. As he lay dying on his bed, an organ grinder passed outside his window and was playing the finale to Lucia de Lammermoor. His eyes lit up and he was heard to murmur, Ah, my Lucia, just before taking his last breath. It is true that this opera reminds us of an era where madness and insanity was misunderstood and women were assumed to be fragile and unstable creatures. But this opera also invites us to look deeper into Lucia's madness and examine the reasons why she reaches the depths of despair that she does. The struggles she endures are ones that still occur today, both inside and outside similar contexts. I am sure all of us can relate to the feeling of being cornered in situations that are unpleasant and emotionally taxing. We all endure heartache and betrayal, families are torn apart by feuds and blackmail, and psychological torment is something that humanity has not yet found a way to ultimately conquer. Opera audiences are drawn to this story again and again because the plot, the music, and the singing speak to emotions within us all that are still very real and very powerful. So I will end our episode today with a quote that I cannot separate in my mind from Lucia by philosopher Michel Foucault. Through madness, a work that seems to drown in the world, actually engages within itself the world's time, masters it, and leads it. By the madness which interrupts it, a work of art opens a void, a moment of silence, a question without an answer. It provokes a breach without reconciliation where the world is forced to question itself. What is necessarily a profanation in the work of art turns to that point, and in the time of that work swamped in madness, the world is made aware of its guilt. Oh! <laughs>
That was lecturer Naomi Baratera's take on the devastating tale of Lucia de Lamamor. So we want to know, did you learn something new in today's episode? Did our discussion encourage you to listen to or experience the opera in a new way? Do you have a favorite Lucia or a favorite Lucia cadenza? We want to know your answers. We always love getting your thoughts and feedback. Send us a message to info at medguild.org, or you can connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. I'm Stuart Holt. Thank you so much for listening.